As you know, the On Farm podcast is brought to you by the team at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. And I just wanted to remind you about a new initiative that's happening here called On Record. On Record is a project to preserve voices, stories and memories for the future with your very own audio recording. So we're recording memories of rural life. We're travelling around Scotland, working with families and organisations to capture precious voices of family members or staff members or long-serving office bearers to preserve those for posterity and sometimes for historical value. So if you think this project is something that you'd like to be involved in and maybe you have a grandparent or a parent that you'd like to capture on audio while you can, please do get in touch. You can find out more at onrecordmemories.co.uk. Hello and welcome back to On Farm. This is Anna and this is my first episode of 2023 because Monty kicked off the year last week with a brilliant chat with the famous Red Shepherdess. Now, today's episode is generously supported by Horselicks. Horselicks balancers provide everyday balanced nutritional support for horses and ponies in one easy to use cost effective lick and I have more than one outside here in our stables. We are hugely grateful to Horselicks and as you listen on, it will become clear why they were keen to partner with us for this particular episode. Back in February 2021, we were delighted to welcome Her Royal Highness the Princess Royal onto On Farm. She was launching a research drive and fellowship based at Edinburgh's Morden Research Institute to study and find a cure for equine grass sickness, which is a mysterious and horrendous disease that's almost always fatal to horses and seems to be most prevalent in Scotland. When I was competing, and we used to come up to Scotland to the competitions up here, we were always warned not to let the horses graze because grass sickness was rampant in Scotland and it was considered to be something that you didn't see anywhere else. And yet the history of grass sickness goes back to the early days, to the origins of the modern. So it's, it's an old disease, but it's been unbelievably difficult to pin down. And here we are a century later and we're still going round some of the boys again It is still a seriously difficult disease to get a grip on. We also heard back in 2021 about how grass sickness had recently killed five horses at Her Late Majesty the Queen's Balmoral Stud. Princess Anne is, of course, the patron of the Morden Foundation and a horse lover herself, so there are lots of reasons why this is an issue she really cares about. Every time I go to the Morden, I catch up with the grass sickness research. It always needs that little extra kick a little extra momentum and funding to hopefully make that that a real step forward for Morden to launch a research fellowship as part of its centenary and to choose to do so with grass sickness is pretty significant so I'm, I'm delighted to launch that the new research fellowship for equine grass sickness at the Morden and I hope there'll be lots of people to be interested apply for it and fund it So today, we are nearly two years on, and we are hearing about the latest developments from the fund and on equine grass sickness research, hearing from two people at the heart of the project. Hi there, my name is Anne Logan. I am chairman. I have the privilege to be chairman of the Equine Grass Sickness Fund. I am a veterinary practitioner and have worked in mixed practice for longer than I'd care to mention, and I now just do some equine work. And so I'm very interested in grass sickness, obviously. My name is Beth Wells. I'm a principal investigator at the Morden Research Institute. 
and I'm the lead for the Equine Grass Sickness Fellowship Project at the Morden. Well, ladies, thank you very much for joining me. Now, Monty actually had the privilege of creating the two previous episodes we have done about equine grass sickness. And he, I think, got slightly starstruck when he spoke to Her Royal Highness the Princess Royal. But I've taken over for these two because I'm just as horsey as Monty. And I've been following the journey of the Equine Grass Sickness Fund and the Morden and the Fellowship and all of the things we're just about to talk about. And we'd love an update, basically. Basically, that's why I'm here. It was February 2021 that you last spoke with Monty. That's nearly two years ago from when we're recording now. And really excited to find out what's been happening with the Equine Grass Sickness Fellowship in that time. So I might start with you, Beth, if that's okay, because we spoke to you for the last two episodes back in 2021. And at that point, you had a, a new member of staff undertaking the fellowship who'd only been in post for a week. Tell us, if you can, in your own words what's been happening in the last almost two years hi anna yeah this this is great to get an update actually because it's made me really look back and think right what have we achieved in the last couple of years and really there's a massive list so i don't know quite where you want me to stop and start um it was right at the beginning of the project that i spoke to monty last we've done a huge amount and and looking back at that interview it was been all about raising awareness about collecting samples for the biobank about getting um, vets practices involved and horse owners involved in looking at the research and bringing all the researchers together and having a really out-of-the-box look at what's been done and perhaps what we need to do going forward. So that's basically where we are now, two years into the fellowship. I think we have about 1,500, some 1,500 samples in the biobank um, and these would include animal and environment and that was our one of our main aims was to broaden out the research into all areas that we think could be involved. And as you probably know from the previous podcasts, we don't know the causes. So it was really all directed to try and identify the causes if we possibly could. Yes, and you've mentioned a couple of them already. I, I picked up when I have listened to the previous episodes that you know the causes could be related to weather, climate, soil, environment, biology of the animal, so many different things. And I think we'll come on and talk in a bit more detail about some of those things if we may. But for the benefit of those people who perhaps haven't listened to our previous episodes, they, they haven't heard the, the, the interview with uh, the Princess Royal and others, so I might come to you, Anne. Can you tell us a little bit about what equine grass sickness is and and in fact why there is even a fellowship and a fund in the first place. Equine grass sickness in simple terms is a paralysis of the gut. The horse is dead inside. It's a tragic d- disease because if, if the horse has acute grass sickness then, then there is no chance of survival. Um, so it's a very emotive and sad disease for, um, for, for the owner. There are three forms of grass sickness we call acute, subacute and chronic. And the chronic cases, we think perhaps is just if there's a causal agent, it may be the amount of that causal agent that the horse ingests or or is subject to that will allow it to actually survive the the disease. For the acute and subacute cases, there is very, but there's no chance of survival for acute and minimal chance of survival for for subacute. So basically what happens, the gut stops working. So in acute cases, the horse um, doesn't eat 
and they um, rapidly lose weight and become very tucked up. And there's a, we call it a greyhound abdomen. They actually look, they take on the shape of, of a racing great greyhound. From a vet's point of view, the diagnosis of grass sickness is, is based on a, a, quite a few different factors. There's no one definitive clinical sign that we can say is grass sickness but when you put four or five different things together you can probably say that, that this horse does have grass sickness um, and obviously with post-mortem then you can decide you know you can confirm your di- your diagnosis then. Mm-hmm. From the Equine Grass Sickness Fund website I picked up actually that the, the- the disease is 80% fatal. So 80% of these acute or subacute cases, um, whereas you say there's nothing that can be done. And then in the remaining cases, it's intensive nursing is required to, to enable these animals to survive. So it's, it's not just a disease that's tragic for the horse, but it's actually tragic for uh, the horse owning population because of this rate of of death. And you know, m- most people who are horse owners, it's it's a passion, and they've got a love for these animals. And and I think that's probably how the fellowship came about, isn't it? Because um, Sylvia Ormiston, who runs the Balmoral Stud, had lost five horses to this disease, and I think she was emotionally drained and had just had enough and felt that the time it was time that we did something collectively to stop this heartache or to try and stop this heartache by finding the cause I guess first and then once you know the cause potentially finding a treatment is that a a reasonable summary Anne of of how this all came about? I mean my own experience of grass sickness my father had Clydesdales so as a, a young child um I can remember horses dying of, of grass sickness. Um, and, and then obviously as I um, grew up, we had ponies on the farm and, and we lot, every two or three years we, we would lose one to grass sickness. And there was obviously an in, inevitability that if you were a horse owner in, a, in an area where grass sickness was prevalent, that it was almost an accepted risk that you will lose one or two every few years to grass sickness. Um, 1907, I think, was was the first case that was diagnosed, and um, I'm also involved with the Royal Highland um, and Agricultural Society. And in our archives, there's um, there's a 1924. There's a really good article describing grass sickness by a, a, a gentleman called John Toker, and what he describes is exactly the same symptoms and the sort of the whole plethora of, of clinical signs of grass sickness and it's exactly the same as we see now. I mean there have been theories from 1924 onwards and Beth as, as you know we're still looking at these theories and trying to find the causal agent. It's an, an enigma of, of a disease. That, that's exactly it. There's been so many theories in the past and none of these have either been proved or disproved completely so we can't ignore what's happened in the past and we're taking that forward with all our, our new approach. And I suppose that's it. It's it's a hundred years, more than a hundred years that this has been a diagnosed illness. It's been affecting horses and obviously people for that time. And and it, the theories are there, but now it's time to try and, as you say, prove or disprove those theories. 
I mentioned have you know having familiarized myself with the disease a little bit you know biology environment soil weather how has the has the research over the last 18 months two years been looking into the various possibilities and theories Beth can you talk us through a little bit more about uh, what's been happening with regard to maybe narrowing down or focusing or whatever you've been doing because I'm fascinated obviously I want like we all do I want us all to get to the end point and find that that cause and find that treatment but there's a lot of work to go meantime so what's been happening I'd love to know Yes, well, so the the, um, the project started off really as a biobank project. So the first thing we realised was it's such a difficult disease because we can't we can't have a trial, we can't have experimental trials, if you like, because we don't know what causes it. So we have to rely on getting samples from field cases. So there is nowhere in the country a really good catalogued biobank of samples to interrogate. So without that, we we can't research anything. We just can't move forward. So the first job was actually to set up a national biobank of samples from both the horse. So these are either post-mortem tissue samples or pre-mortem or post-mortem bloods, urine, faeces, saliva. And these have then been correctly processed and biobanked for available for all researchers to use that have a project to investigate equine grass sickness. Along with those, we've got um, soil, pasture, and readings such as climatic data. Now, the first two years has really been all about setting that up because that's been a massive task on its own right because there's no point in setting up a biobank unless it's correct. And along with that biobank, we have a questionnaire survey, which is out for all horse owners at all times. And the links to that are on the Equine Grass Sickness Fund website. And that's to collect the data surrounding. And this is what we also lacked was the owner's perception of the horse on the run-up to disease, on anything different that happened to the management of the horse, the, the weather conditions, what the horse was being fed, whether they'd been wormed, all those sorts of things that we feel are important when we're talking about horses being more susceptible, one horse being more susceptible than, than a field mate. Along with the cases, we've also been gathering samples on field controls. So these are field companions of the horse which have not succumbed to disease because they're just as important So, you know, why did that horse succumb? Why did that horse not succumb? So that to us was a really important comparison to have those cases and field controls. So as I say, we've we've now got to think about just under 70 individual horse samples. So these would include post-mortem tissue samples. Now, that's not a huge collection if we're talking about research. We would really ideally like hundreds because obviously statistically we can't really prove or disprove anything on a few samples we need, so we need to keep building we need to keep appealing to owners and vets to join the biobank and to do the utmost they can to persuade owners and what is a really difficult time for the owner to actually give us samples and particularly post-mortem samples and and we understand that and so we, we try and do that as sympathetically as we can and the vets have been a m- marvelous support we have some 60 practices now from all over the UK, including some of the biggest referral centres who are dealing with the owners at their end, asking for the samples, getting all the necessary consents and then sending us uh, the samples. So that's really where we are. 
in terms of research, we've only just started to interrogate some of these samples. Now, research is slow and it's frustrating and it's very frustrating to the owners, much more so than the scientists who don't realise that we're very slow. And, and the reason for that is, as I say, they need to collect enough samples, otherwise we're wasting everybody's time and money, but also to get this properly funded. Now, research is expensive. It costs a lot of money to use new technologies, and it's new technologies that we're interested in. We're interested in reinterrogating these samples using the latest technologies that we have available. So currently we're doing a case and control study at Morden with a brand new um, state-of-the-art mass spec machine. And basically that just splits the sample into all the constituent proteins. So it gives us an idea of what proteins are in the sera of that horse that's died of grass sickness compared to a control which is healthy. So we're just basically analysing this at the moment. We have over 75,000 hits from that mini trial. So we're going through that with a fine tooth comb at the moment, looking at the proteins that are involved in the case and compared to the controls. And that'll take quite a while to, to analyse. With, with those, we call them pilot results, we can then go for proper funding. So when we're looking at funding, you know, a full-scale, say, proteomics um, experiment like this, we're talking about maybe three or four hundred thousand pounds to run it, you know, the full scale. So we, we have to go for, for big funding pots for that. So we're at the moment collecting that preliminary data to enable us for the next step on, for the next part of the fellowship, really, to be able to, to attract external funding. I suppose the enormity of it hits home there. Anne, you know, you, you, you've, I don't, I, I feel very grateful. I don't have any personal experience of grass sickness, but you said, you know, you've experienced it throughout your life as a horse owner and as a vet. So, so why is it so important that, that we help people to, to overcome this, them being so distraught, but still to think about the biobank at the same time? Probably one of the most important jobs that I think I can do as chairman of the, the Grass Sickness Fund is to drive the the ability of all of us as veterinary practitioners to go out there and explain to owners about grass sickness and also actually to try and encourage them. We hope they don't have a case of grass sickness, but if they do, then they, if we can have them opt in to giving the samples to the, the biobank. So almost like a, a donor card type thing with an opt-in rather than an opt-out. We've got ideas of, of do we have a little flyer that we put into um, every horse's passport so that actually when it comes to the point of the horse is going to be put down, the owner's already aware of grass sickness and, what, and how they can be helpful to the research mm -hmm. in, in the future. The science is so important and Beth's talked us through some of that and, and, and hopefully we can talk about it in a little bit more detail in, in a minute. But the science is so important, but actually that's not the only goal here. You know, you've got other goals and, and you've touched on it twice now, Anne. One of those goals is awareness raising. And, and I think, can you maybe just talk us through why that is so important as well as all of the work that's going on in a lab? Obviously, the, there are horse owners out there who still yet um, are not aware of the work of the Equine Grass Sickness Fund. And indeed, there are vet, veterinary surgeons who probably aren't a, a, aware of it. So so I think my task this winter with a few others, we've said we, we, we're going to do a phone round, a lot of 
the practices and, and encourage them to, to actually click on the equine grass sickness website, see what we can do, because it has to be a, a work with everybody, the vets, the scientists and the horse owners to, together. We need to get as many samples as possible. And there have been fewer cases, Beth, you would agree, there, there have been fewer cases of grass sickness, certainly in 2022, and it is my impression as a practitioner over the last five, ten years, there have been fewer cases. Um, yeah. But for, from a research point of view, that's not great. But what we need to we need to be ready that if we do have whenever we have cases in the future, that those owners are aware and the vets of um, what they can do to help future research. Yeah, I think I think that's that is fair to say that especially this this past year, there's been fewer cases. And that's very interesting in itself. So, you know, why why is that? Is there more awareness? Are horse owners managing it better in the conditions that we know can promote cases? So whether, obviously, this plays a pretty large part here, and that's really been anecdotally known about for a long time. So as, as an add-on to this study, we have a master's student looking at that, that very thing about whether data on the lead-up to cases, and she's looking at things like temperature differentials, which we think are involved. So large temperature differentials between night and day, um, and also air pressure systems, which bring in those weather conditions. Um, so she's working on a model at the moment, which cases are fitting very nicely. And not just cases in the UK, but cases in Italy and in Holland um, have all fit into this, this new model that we're working on. And how I see this as being useful would be in a type of horse owners app a bit like the, how the laminitis app works at the moment where the the phone knows where the horse owner is the phone can then look into the weather conditions at that point where the phone is whether it's in, in the horse's field and then give an indication of is this red sort of alert weather for grass sickness or is it amber or are we fine is it green and at that point then we can we can give management advice to the horse owners you know the old ones that you know we've always given things like getting the horse off grass for a part of the day feeding supplementary forage maybe not warming maybe delaying the warmer till you're out of the red weather area so these are the sorts of practical things we're working on alongside the more sort of scientific research these are all areas where we've we've now collected large numbers of samples, particularly through some longitudinal studies we've been doing. And these are long-term studies that we've been carrying out at Balmoral and also at World Horse Welfare Bellweed Farm. And they've given us tremendous access to their horses um, and also to the environment where we can build up these big sample banks where we're sampling regularly, so monthly. So if, if we do get a case, then we've got all the information on the run-up and also on, on the other side of the case, you know, has something changed just at that point within that horse or within that horse's environment? Um, and these are all clues. And I mean, I do, I do think we'll get there. It's just going to be long-term. It's going to require big efforts from everybody. Mm -hmm. And it's also going to require us working together across disciplines of science, which we are actually very good at. So we're used to working with soil scientists and climate specialists. So we just need to bring in all these experts in their own field, uh, which we actually did earlier on this year at a, a crucible event 
where we just had all the scientists in one room for a day, gave all the sort of basics about the disease and what we know about it and also what we don't know about it and then just set their minds are thinking. And the interesting thing about that is once you give a scientist a really difficult puzzle, it's a bit like a dog with a bone, they will not let it go. Almost a year later, I'm still getting emails going, what about, what about, should we look mm. at? These are scientists that maybe don't have any experience of horses, any experience of this disease at all, but because their own field's involved, they feel that there's, there's something they can contribute. And I, I think that's, that's our way forward. And I think this is the approach we need to continue with. That's really great to hear, actually, Beth, because when I was listening back to the last episodes of the podcast that we did, you you mentioned twice, I think, actually, how desperate you were to get all of the experts together physically in a room because we were last episodes were in lockdown. So I'm so pleased that you've been able to do that and you've been able to to get people talking. And there won't be a definitive answer to this, I know, but I'm I'm curious. Do you think there are a lot of cases of grass sickness that never come to light? Oh, yes, I think so. I think um, especially with with the acute cases, because although everyone is supposed to monitor their horse every day, we know that that is not the case. So it is possible that what is apparently a sudden death is not actually a sudden death, but the cause is acute grass sickness. I think also it's... Because there's no one definitive test that, that we can say that, that we can do on the horse to say it is or isn't grass sickness, there's no doubt that there will be, you know, animals that are put to sleep saying that it isn't grass sickness when it actually mm. is and vice, vice versa. In an ideal world, I suppose if we had endless amounts of, of money to have many more postmortems, that would be the key if, if we could have, like, you know, horses that that die or are put to sleep for, for any other reason, if they could be post-mortemed. But all of that costs such a lot of money. And of course, with horses, you have this e- emotional tie that you don't have with mm. cattle and sheep, for, for example. If this was a disease of cattle or sheep, Beth, uh, research would have would have been going on leaps and bounds by now, wouldn't it? That's the difference. Yeah, It's because you have this e- emotion and... The horse is not an agricultural animal, therefore we are not party to having government funding and things for research. Yeah, that, that's that's absolutely right. It's um, We're finding it very difficult to know where to go for funding um, because, well, the Morden is a livestock research institute and we have obviously a lot of external funding um, for livestock diseases that we because it's a horse, we're, we don't have access to them, so we can't even apply for those funds. So we are restricted in funding, um, and we don't have government funding for, for equine work. So there's a double whammy. And I was interesting, you know, I agree with Anne totally, we are only getting the tip of the iceberg in the reported cases, and we report these cases on to our national equine surveillance, so it comes out in the surveillance quarterly reports where these cases are and at what time of year. Now, for example, last year there was a case in Wales where there was a veterinary practice who had never seen a case of grass sickness in that location before. But because three of them died within a week, by the time it came to the third one, the owner was really questioning, I can't have killed three horses with colic in a week. I just can't have. And she asked for the final pony to be postmortemed because that is your gold standard diagnostic is pathology on, on the ileal sample. And this horse had grass sickness, this pony. So 
by supposition then the previous two is very likely would have been the same but by that time obviously you know they, they were gone so I think there's there's all sorts of examples like this that are coming up and as we raise awareness and owners as well as vets hear about it who are maybe not used to dealing with it it's suddenly cropping up in areas you know for example this year most of our cases have come from the southwest mm. of England now that's not a traditional grass sickness area you would say but we are seeing Gloucestershire, Worcestershire, Devon, Dorset. So we've had samples from all these counties where before you would think, oof, that's unusual. But, but is it unusual or is it just we haven't picked mm. it up before? But this is where the data is really important. Yes, because, I mean, I had, I had heard that it was, pr- it was most prevalent on the east coast of the UK, you know, Aberdeenshire, Murray, yeah. the northeast of England. And so I suppose, how, how is, you know, you mentioned IT and technology, Beth. Are you using kind of mapping on a geographical basis as well to, to map cases? And I'm fascinated to see how that or hear how that works. Yes, that's exactly um, what what it's about as well. It's, it's to um, we're using GIS mapping now. I'm a biologist. I haven't a clue what they're doing, but they produce the most beautiful pictures. And I've just had one sent through from our master student. So we've got a master student, and we've got an undergrad project student working on this at the moment, and they're looking um, at mapping cases against various criteria that we know are important. So I've already talked about the weather. We're also mapping it against catchments, against river basins, and I think that's what drives these weather patterns. So um, things like frost hollows and so postcodes, what three words, all these that location data becomes absolutely critical for these projects. And that's, of course, is where our owner questionnaires come in. And again, the owners that have filled in this questionnaire, and we've almost got 100 full questionnaires recovered now, basically are very good at giving us that. So they're giving us almost like a what three-word location of where the horse died, um, which enables us to get really accurate weather data because, again, there's microstations all over the place. And we've actually got a microstation at Bellweed Farm at a boy now um, as part of our longitudinal study. And that just allows us to hone in on what is important and what maybe isn't as important. But the maps that come out of this will be um, stunning and I think will give a lot of really good information for owners. And I think still we have more cases in the northeast of Scotland than anywhere else in the country. I think that's that's fair to say. But this year we didn't. And this year the weather conditions in the north were very unusual. So again, when we had those high temperature differential weather, the horses up here, there was no grass. The horses were still in hay or they were still part stabled. At the same time in the south of England, they had exactly the same weather conditions, but they had grass and they had cases. So you see, we start to make these associations um, and then we can use the data to back up the associations. And that's what's never been done before. We've never had this, the, the data to back up what, what we're actually seeing. Um, and this is what, what these two students are, are working on at the moment. That's on the environmental side of it. So I would say to every biologist, if you're looking at a really difficult disease, hire a geographer. I, I think, yeah, I think that's it. You've you've got you've got all of these different parts of the puzzle, and it sounds as though actually technology and other disciplines are going to play a massive part in in solving this and and finding these missing pieces of the jigsaw. I'm fascinated as well by 
the fact that, and, and this was highlighted by Sylvia from the Balmoral Stud, that you know the, every pony that they lost in a one-year period had been in a field with many other ponies, and yet it was only a handful that succumbed. And I, I as I'm fascinated by what, and, and I guess it's similar with humans in in some respects. But some of these, some animals must have some sort of immunity to this. Do you think, Beth, that um, that it's only attacking? individuals in in a paddock yeah that that's that's certainly one of the areas that is obviously of prime importance is immunity studies um, and, li- and like those other studies that we're doing and that was one of the areas that was pulled out of the the crucible event with all the, the scientists together as an area requiring further study is that we've got we have got new technologies now so from when that was last looked at we've got much more sensitive methods um, of of pulling these samples apart, so the our ability now to perhaps find a toxin that may be in, you know, just micro micro amounts has has really improved. So I think although you know owners might say, oh, we've you know that's been done before, that's been going on for ages. We do have new ways of of looking at it and also looking at everything as a whole. So not. Just looking at the micro, so the, the microbiome of the horse, which is you know very important in what's in the horse's gut, but also looking at the immunology of that horse. Has that horse actually got antibodies that can res- resist disease, or is it just better in a better nutritional and health status? Um, has something happened to the horse that's disrupted any of its immune response or any of its its sort of um, its microbiome, its normal microbiome in its gut? And, and or is there something else in the gut that's mm-hmm. affecting gut health? There's all sorts of areas, and I think we really do need to look at this in a holistic way, and take yes, take all these different parts of the scientific puzzle, but then put it as a whole, the animals working as a whole. So I think it's like a whole system biology re- approach would be really useful here, which is why we need so many experts, because, you know, as Anne says, the more we look into it, the more something else comes up and we think, oh, crikey, you know, here we go again, we need to get an expert in mineral nutrition or, you know, whatever. But, but what I'm so impressed with, with all these scientists that we've engaged, is they're all giving freely of their time and their expertise. And that's massive, you know, mm-hmm. for, for a charity, which the Equine Grass Lightness Fund is, you know, that's incredible. So it, it is moving forward. It's just going to take time. And I think we need to be patient. We need to collect the data. As you say, tragically, we need more cases. But without the cases and without the samples, we can't move forward. So it's a bit of a, yeah, it's a really difficult mm-hmm. catch situation, especially when you're talking to owners and you're saying you're wanting samples. And the last thing they're wanting to do is have a case, of course. This has been a really fascinating chat. And I'm not going to ask you to predict what we'll be talking about in another 18 months but I'd love you both to tell me what your priorities are going to be each of you over the next 18 months and then we will come back and revisit again and and see where we are at that point so Anne I might just start with you what what's your focus over the next 18 months to to contribute? I think definitely to raise awareness of the disease with vets and horse owners and I think really to to push this opt-in attitude that if you have a case of grass sickness, we've already um, discussed it and and it's not going to be such a difficult um, process for the the vet to say, would you mind if we 
take samples from your horse for the biobank or indeed a, a post-mortem. Also driving forward fundraising. I mean, 2022, we've had some marvellous input from from people who, I mean, Beth and I were at the, the show in the Black Isle by Vaughan, who I know spoken. I, I mean, these these people out there are amazing, the amount of money that they raise just through charity shows. We were at the Royal Highland Show and we were at Blair. We were the chosen charity at Blair International Horse Trials. And and that's so important, to, uh, just to, to get the, the fund out there. Norbrook, the drug company, they... They purchased a horse for us. It's a fiberglass horse. It's, it's a wonderful creature called Norbrook Gut Feeling. If people are interested, go on to the, the Mordon Foundation Equine News on the Equine Grass Sickness webpage and you'll see the horse whose stable name is Norris. And, and it's, it's things like that. I am, have been blown away by, like, I, can't, I don't want to mention everybody in case, in case I miss somebody, but the amount of money that, that people who have lost horses and then they, they come on board and raise money. I know we are looking for hundreds of thousands, but um, the tens of thousands are equally a, as important. Beth, over the next 18 months or so, until we speak again, what's your kind of main drive and focus? Well, um, I'm, I'm very interested in the awareness raising side of this as well. So I'm very keen to work with the Equine Grass Sickness Fund on this and we all do work together very well in terms of promoting the project and promoting the biobank. So things like webinars and conferences, that, that will be ongoing. I work with the British Horse Society, who I should mention, because they have completely funded the biobank for three years. And that has enabled us to do this sample collection in the first place. And, you know, Anne mentioned Norbrook. We've also got Norvite, um, who are a very small company in the northeast of Scotland who have given us amazing support even down to you know sampling pasture and analyzing pasture but but in terms of my I suppose the research priorities that's very much getting pilot data so pilot data for the weather model for the catchment model in the environmental side pilot data for the microbiome which is a horse and the environment so that includes fecal and soil samples which we've collected so getting, again, some pilot data on, on those, comparing cases with controls. The proteomics work that we're doing on CIRA at the moment that we're hoping to extend to urine. Um, we've just set up a collaboration with Surrey Vet School where we'll be getting urine samples from over 40 equine grass sickness cases. They've been looking at biomarker work. We're going to add to that biomarker work by using our saliva samples that we've been collecting to see if we can get early diagnostic biomarkers for both um, urine and for saliva. So these are the main, I think, scientific priorities. Uh, there's lots of other stuff I'd love to do, but I've got to kind of rein myself in and just concentrate on what we can afford to do at the moment. And we can afford to do those pilot studies with the funding research that we've had from people like Yvonne and Sylvia and all the people who have really, really helped us Get together, as Anne says, the tens of thousands are important because the tens of thousands will run the pilots and then we can take that forward to the big hundreds of thousands projects where we really want to do a big sample survey. That's our best chance of getting the causes, I feel. And we, we need to get the causal agents, there's no doubt in my mm -hmm. mind as well. We're aiming for a vaccine, that's, a, that's our long-term aim, but we do need to really focus down and get the causal agents, first of all, 
then we're in a position, you know, vaccines now, mm-hmm. we can produce vaccines against parasites. So, you know, there's not many things you can't produce a vaccine against if you've got enough funding, as COVID has shown. In fact, that's what we quite often get asked was, yes, you know, indeed. you got a COVID vaccine in six months, what's wrong with you lot? But, you know, throw billions at a problem, you'll get a vaccine. So, yeah, that's, I mean, we're, we're determined mm-hmm. and it is a very good team. And I really would like to thank the whole team that's been involved in this. It's involved a massive amount of people giving freely of their time, including people like Anne. But it's not her day job, but she very cheerfully wades in um, and leads the fund um, and has a huge network of vets. And, and this is what's so important. It's using everybody's own expertise to work together. I think that's that's my big wish for the next 18 months is we can continue that and really ramp up the results. You are becoming a bit of an expert at this podcasting business, Beth, because uh, that was a perfect way to (laughs) sum up, I think. Um, It's all about working together and, yeah, it might take time and it will take more cases, but you'll get there in the end. We are hugely grateful to both Anne Logan and Beth Wells for that update on the important work of the Equine Grass Sickness Fund and Fellowship that was first officially launched here on the On Farm podcast back at the start of 2021. For more information, and particularly if you'd like to support the fund, you can contact Beth directly. She's at beth.wells at morden.ac.uk or just get in touch with us on Twitter or Facebook and we can put you in touch. That's about it for me. Just time to say again, thank you to Horse Licks for their generous support of this episode. The On Farm podcast only exists thanks to the generosity of them and our other supporters and sponsors. So if you think you can help to keep On Farm alive, we'd love to hear from you. And finally, On Farm is made by the team here at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. So please do get in touch with us if you need any help with your food or farming branding or business. So take care for now and I shall see you again soon. Bye.